0: Welcome to McClatchy's Beyond the Bubble podcast as counting continues in some very important states. I'm Kristen Roberts, head of news at McClatchy, and with me is political correspondent and my podcast co-host, Alex Rorty. Alex, have you slept?
1: I slept a little last night. The previous 48 hours sleep was uh, was hard to be had. But I'm feeling much more refreshed this morning, ready and uh, excited to do the podcast.
0: You look chipper. It must be all that under eye cream that you've been using, right?
1: Yeah. You sent it to me and you were right. It works great. It works really great.
0: True to the spirit of getting beyond the bubble, this week we are bringing back to the mics two of our local reporters to put into context some of the results in states that were somehow surprising to pollsters and to the national media. And first, let me welcome from the Miami Herald, Bianca Padro Ocasio. Bianca, welcome back. Thank you for having me again. Are you well-rested? You know,
2: <laughs> at least Florida had its count early. So, you know, we got some, some rest yesterday.
0: That's awesome. And a hearty welcome back to Fort Worth Star Telegram's Bud Kennedy, who is a wonderful writer about many things, including politics. Welcome back, Bud.
3: Yeehaw. Hi, Kristen, <laughs> Bianca, Alex. Good to be back.
0: It's good to see you. So there's an exceptional amount of hand wringing among Democrats and the polling community and the national media around yet another election cycle, where perhaps they badly misunderstood at least Florida and Texas. I think the jury remains out on how close pollsters might have been in Arizona, Georgia, Nevada. But let's focus in on Florida and on Texas, because they are in and of themselves absolutely fascinating stories. And so I asked this group to come together to share your insight and your reporting that, frankly, I never saw fully reflected in the polls. So let's get started. I want to start with you, Alex, please. Let's start first with the shock in the polling community. You and Dave Cadeniz produced a fine story yesterday on the Republican pollsters who might have gotten closer than the rest. What did your reporting show you about what what differences there were between what they were doing and what others were doing?
1: Well, I I, I think, you know, for some of the Trump pollsters and for some of the Republicans who think they got this right, you know, there were slight differences in methodology. And I would just say just at the outset of this conversation, I mean the the central problem with polling is the same that it's been for the last decade, in that the traditional methods of calling people on their landline and having a conversation with them just doesn't work anymore. For obvious reasons, we all use cell phones. And there was this great quote that that Dave got from a Republican pollster who was saying, you know, if you're on your cell phone and you get A phone call from, and it shows the number and it's some random area code, right? Because the company that's conducting these polls are from New Jersey or wherever. I mean, do you answer those calls anymore? I mean, I see if I get like a random 908 area code, I just, I just hit decline and move on with my day.
0: You don't assume it's my mother calling you
1: to check in on me? I, I, I don't actually. And, you know, and, and that, you know, it just underscores the degree to which the industry, I mean the standards they used to use just don't work anymore. And where that is being expressed most acutely here, it seems like, is this inability to to gauge the really a white working class vote, or as Bianca knows, being able to go into Florida and and get an accurate gauge of what is an extremely diverse uh community, an extremely diverse Hispanic community in the state. And it's just increasingly difficult to do that. And and I should point out, look. For public pollsters, a lot of them don't have the money and resources that you really need to say, call a 1,000 Hispanics in, in Florida. If they're doing a subsample of 100 people. Maybe some are Puerto Rican, maybe some are Venezuelan, maybe some are Cuban. Who knows, it's only 100 people. That's how you get these really skewed results. But even for some of the pollsters who do have the money, really in the party committees, they obviously spend, you're, you're talking about people who spend millions of dollars on polls trying to get it right. Even among Democrats I talked to, there was a sense of, of despair, their own internal numbers. I think in particular at the presidential level and really at the House level, too. I think there was this widespread feeling that their data was wrong, not just on Election Day, but really throughout the summer. Right. And it shaped a lot of their decisions, a lot of their spending decisions. And, you know, they were pl- trying to play offense in a, almost a 10 different House seats in Texas when it turns out they should have been spending a heck of a lot of money in Florida right, in a pair of House seats that House Democratic incumbents lost, you know, and and I think there is just a lot of soul searching going on in that community. I will say, you know, I reached out to a bunch of Democratic pollsters yesterday, there is some caution being expressed just because we don't have the final results yet. Yes, the Hispanic vote in Florida was a miss. Yes, the Latino vote in Texas along the Rio Grande Valley was a miss. Everywhere else, people want to see final results um, before they really make big proclamations about... What went wrong, but clearly some of the public polls are wrong. You know, just in a state like Ohio. You know, we were led to believe in the public polling that that was about an even race. Maybe Trump up a couple of points. Well, Donald Trump won Ohio, it seems, by eight points, the same margin he did in 2016. And it's a huge miss. And it's almost the same story in Iowa, too. Joe Biden did a little bit better than Hillary Clinton there. I almost can't believe we're back here in the same place well, that we were, exactly or even worse, even in you, worse shape. Now. Alex, yeah. I mean,
0: it, it, how are we here right this is exactly what we were talking about coming out of 16 and after 4 years how did the industry and the parties not fix a problem that was so clear that was so clear in November December of 2016 and January of 2017 i mean are you not surprised by this
1: i'm i'm not surprised by the public polls a little bit less so again look you're talking about a lot of operations, most of them just don't have the money to do polling correctly. And, and if you don't have, a <laughs> I lot have of money all the money
0: do. spent in this election cycle. No, no, no.
1: Public polling. I'm talking, I'm, you know, I'm going to name names, someone like Quinnipiac University or Marist. Now, where I am surprised to your point is the private polling where, where Democrats have had four years to try to fix this. I don't know if 2018 led them to a false sense of security because their polling was right in the midterm election, but with Donald Trump on the ballot, they didn't fix anything.
0: Honestly, Democrats would be better off spending their money buying houses in rural America and just moving people there for the the vote in four years. I mean- That that
1: might be Nancy Pelosi's next
0: plan. Right? (laughs) Getting into into rural real estate. Bianca, I'd really like you to jump in here because I think you have a really good view on what actually happened in Florida and whether or not people should have been surprised by this. So jumping because Alex had some smart things to say about about how that vote broke down and how the pollsters got it wrong. How did the pollsters get it so wrong in Florida among the Hispanic vote?
2: I think that one big issue, uh, certainly like Alex said, is just the challenges of polling Hispanics and, you know, i think everywhere but especially in florida because you have not just the diversity of ethnicities you know people from you know cuba puerto rico mexico colombia et cetera et cetera but you have you know these different generations you have different migration waves you have you know the diversity even geographically within florida and just how different you know communities of latinos think so It's, that's one thing, you know, the, the difficulties and how expensive it is to pull Hispanics. But another thing, you know, I think that there was kind of this overconfidence in the gains that Biden was making with Hispanics because, you know, it's true that there were a lot of efforts from the Biden campaign to really appeal directly to each group of Latinos. So they had, you know, these Colombianos con Biden, Cubanos con Biden. Boricuas con Biden, like they had all these different coalitions and there was this belief that they could kind of, you know, replicate that and and really kind of, you know, win among these groups or at least a percentage enough that could give him an edge. But we just saw that Latinos pretty much overperformed for, for Trump. And we saw that just across the board. It's really amazing because it wasn't just Cuban-Americans. It wasn't, you right. know, just Venezuelan-Americans. It was, it was even Puerto Ricans. We were looking at data yesterday in Osceola County in Central Florida, which is you know the second largest, has the second largest population of Puerto Ricans in the state of Florida, and it overperformed for for Trump, and it's just incredible. Like how you know how do you really talk to Latino groups? And this is kind of a, the question on the minds of a lot of Democrats. Kind of you know postmortem, how do you talk to to a lot of Latinos in a way that is really you know talking about policy and not just you know spreading and kind of defending yourself from these attacks from Republicans of, you know, socialism. And, you know, there was this new term that we're kind of uh, writing a story on right now, but looking at non-Cuban Hispanic groups and how they were really, you know, receiving this messaging and onslaught of, you know, socialism and disinformation on, you know, calling Biden a socialist and all that stuff, it wasn't just Cuban Americans. It wasn't just Venezuelan Americans or Nicaraguan Americans. It was Colombians. It was, you know, all these other groups that are coming from, you know, countries that have experienced violence, that have maybe, you know, lived through this threat of, you know, leftist policies and they're just scared. And, you you know, when you put on that all the information and all the outlets that were locally in Spanish... Repeating these same messages. I mean, it, it, it doesn't surprise many of us that we're hearing that. And actually, you know, just as on an anecdotal level, I was at a Biden event recently when Obama uh, came back to Miami this week. And I talked to some supporters who were there and some of them were even volunteers for the Biden campaign. And they told me, I don't know about Florida. (laughs) I'm scared about Florida because, you know, Sure, you see all the efforts from the campaign, but when you go out grocery shopping, when you see the rally that Trump had in Locka that violated the curfew of Miami-Dade County, and you saw how many people showed up, I mean, it's not, it, it, it's not that surprising that there was that much enthusiasm.
0: Yeah, there was, um, I think we talked about it last time, there was a level of sophistication in a way that Republicans approached the Latino community in Florida that I think the Democratic Party was missing. Because we and the National Democratic Party was missing because, you know, as well as I do, and so does David Smiley, that we were all hearing from Democratic operatives in South Florida saying our guy is underperforming among Hispanics Indeed, Right. So it it shouldn't have been so shocking, I think, which is really what's so surprising to me about other people's surprise about how Florida turned out. But but I'd like you to jump in here because there's been a lot of conversation. In fact, you and I have had conversation over the course of four years about whether Texas actually is a purple state. What were people getting wrong as they were looking at Texas in 2020 this year?
3: You know, there there are so many assumptions. The Democratic Party has always pitched this message that Texas isn't a red state, it's a non-voting state. If they ever got this giant turnout, then the Democrats would all win. They got the turnout they wanted. It didn't happen. What did happen was that Carl Rove's plan uh, that's been in place many years in Texas, you know, worked pretty well again. You win 40% of the Latino vote, and the Republicans are able to keep control. You do that by uh, pitching economic development, law and order, and social issues too. And so they're able to keep, this is the same Latino vote. Donald Trump won the same Latino vote that Rick Perry used to win as governor, that Greg Abbott used to win as governor. You know, These are the people that voted for Donald Trump now. They didn't vote for Donald Trump four years ago, but they did fall back into this pattern uh, of voting for him. Uh, The other thing that's happened, and this again has happened over a long time in Texas, people see new voters and new registrations and they think, wow, all those people must be Democrats. No, when people move to Texas, they come to Texas for jobs, for economic development, for new homes, uh, less expensive homes, low taxes, you know, they come here to work. Dallas, Fort Worth, what a, you know, one of the big job centers in the country. Uh, you know, people have moved here from all over America for jobs. And so when you see Texas growing, uh, you know, it, it, Texas right now is about 45% Republican, 40% Democrat, the rest, you know, independents. The growth, the, all the new voters are about the same ratio. All the new people that come, are slightly Republican too. And so the, the idea that all these new people must be Democrat is just a complete mistake. And the, uh, so all the, you know, you going into the, the, uh, going into the, the election day, you had 45% of the voters had no record it had no party record, but you, we still figured that they would be predominantly Republican voters, just like the, the voters that had a record. And so we figured Trump would win by a point or two. John Cornyn would win by three or four points, uh, I really did not think that they would uh, flip the state house at all. They didn't wind up moving a single seat. They they flipped one seat, and the Republicans flipped one seat back, so they made no gain in the state house. Uh, all the the things that the Democrats said, if they just spent money and had the turnout, they'd get. They didn't get any of
0: them. Yeah, I think the turnout argument among Democrats is really what gets you in Texas.
3: And you know one one point I want to make is that this is not new. This has happened. You know, Ann Richards was defeated by George W. Bush. The the second time Ann Richards ran, she got more votes than she did the first time. But George W. Bush got even more votes because of all the new people who'd moved to Texas. Ann Richards was supported by native Texans and regular voters. George W. Bush was supported by new Texans. Two years ago, Ted Cruz won with new Texans. Beto O'Rourke was the choice of native Texans in that Senate race but Ted Cruz had all the newcomers and that's what lifted him to victory the newcomers you know are are uh, are Republican.
1: Yeah, I was going to say this is almost the story across the whole country not necessarily with with new voters but look Joe Biden I mean is going to win an historic number of votes probably when this is all across the country when this is all said and done and he is way, way, way above Hillary Clinton's totals, um, even in, in places like Ohio or, or Iowa, um, because overall turnout is up. It's just that Donald Trump helped engineer his presence on the ballot, engineered this enormous turnout surge from his own voters. And to, to, to pull the conversation back to polling briefly just for a second, that's where the polls are missing, right? It's the surge voters who are dedicated to supporting Trump who the polls are just missing entirely. I mean, the degree to which they are capturing them, they're probably not capturing the, the overall share of support, the overwhelming share of support that Trump is receiving from them. And so that's that's really the story in, in, in a lot of these states and a lot of the battlegrounds. You know, The Democrats turned out, Joe Biden did pretty well, it seems like, with moderates and independents, but it's this, this enormous surge of, not entirely, but it's gonna be concentrated among white working class voters who the polls failed to to detect, um, and I will say in defense of some Democrats I spoke to, that was if they were if I asked them to list their number one concern, it was that they weren't able to detect this coming wave, that their tools were imperfect for for predicting turnout, um, and that it, in theory this could happen. They didn't think it was going to happen, but in theory this was what they were worried about most. And then lo and behold, on Tuesday, that's that's exactly what happened.
0: Alex, is there any risk that there's some confirmation bias in the polling community where they think that young voters are going to vote Democratic and so that's what they find? And they think that women are going to vote Democratic, so that's what they find?
1: There could be. Um, I mean, it's certainly, if the numbers come back the way you expect them, I don't think you're going to interrogate the poll necessarily too, too harshly. You know, I, I would just say there's one phenomenon that I think pollsters have been dismissive of um, before this election is the shy Trump voter. Um, which got a lot of conversation in 16. I know people who have who have done the work. I mean, you're talking about months and months of research to look through the numbers in the 2016 polling and see if the shy Trump voters or why the numbers were skewed. They came back and said, no. I mean, almost uniformly, the polling community doesn't think that. I did have a pollster, uh, Glenn Volger, who's a very prominent Republican pollster, talked to me yesterday. They did a post-election poll that found that 19% of Trump voters said they were hesitant to share their opinion about supporting the president compared to only 8% of Joe Biden voters. And this again, you're talking about a top of the line Republican pollster who had been dismissive of the shy Trump voter hypothesis who now says, you know what? Actually, I think we need to revisit this. He actually called it a self-fulfilling myth that there was so much discussion about the shy Trump voter phenomenon in, and voters are paying so close attention this year that people actually started to think, well, maybe there's something to that and maybe I shouldn't be telling people or I mm-hmm. shouldn't be telling pollsters who I support. I want to be clear that he's not saying that this definitely happened, just that it's actually worthy of investigation right now. And so that's maybe one potential reason. And I think just goes to underscore just how difficult polling can can be if a phenomenon that the evidence says didn't happen in 16 suddenly does appear in 20. I mean, that that's a difficult thing to catch.
0: So, so, Bud, is Texas a swing state?
3: Well, I, I was going to say, in, in Texas, too, I think there was a movement in the last couple of weeks of the campaign. Uh, you know, the Republican reaction to Trump was very tepid here. The, the first week of the campaign, the first week of early voting, uh, the exit polls from early voting showed that about 5% of Republicans were voting for Biden. But then Biden talked about uh, downplaying oil and gas and, 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 you know, the transition away from the energy industry. That turned off a lot of Texans. I, I work in Fort Worth, Texas. This city is built on beef, oil, and the national defense industry. None of those are very politically correct, but, you know, you know, we cling to all those are very important. And So Texans were a little upset about that. Uh, then, you know, they sent Kamala Harris into Fort Worth and into Texas. Now, last week into the campaign, we saw the Biden bus and some of the ra- rallies against that. It seemed like that kind of provoked some Republicans and got out more vote, too. Uh, Texas is going to be a swing state. I've said for 10 years that in 2022 is the flip. I think when we get away from this presidential cycle, the Democrats do have a chance in 2022. I think the question is, you know, if, even if you have a better O'Rourke at the top of the ticket running for governor, uh, which is, is the talk. then the question is, will people give them money? Will people any, you know, all over the country give them money the way they sank money into the, the House races this cycle, uh, without winning a single thing?
0: So Bianca, our friend Mark Caputo of Politico in Florida tweeted that Florida is a red state and people, you know, the implication being, you know, let's stop talking about it as purple. What do you think?
2: You know, I think that if things continue the way they have for the past, you know, uh, two, four years, I think that, yeah, uh, Florida is a red state. There were people arguing that Joe Biden should move to Florida just in the last couple months of the campaign and just stay here. But it was clear and it became clear to the that villages the. To the villages, (laughs) to Orlando, to, you know, there are people saying he should move to Orlando and that's it. But, you know, it became clear in the last, you know, couple of months that maybe the Biden campaign was looking more to the Midwest as kind of their path to victory. So I think that, you know, if we are looking at Florida the way it is now and it continues, I think. Absolutely. It is a red state. I, I think that you can also see that in more of the congressional races, the down ballot races, almost all of them in Miami-Dade went red. And, you know, there's a lot of finger pointing right now among Democrats of, you know, what went wrong? What did you do? How much money didn't go into a race? Like, for example, you know, Donna Shalala's race. Um, right. That was a huge shock. So it's like it it's if you don't uh, change the way that the party is running right now, and you know the the way that the the operatives are are approaching Florida, then yeah, it'll it will remain a red state.
1: Talking about things that weren't corrected, errors that haven't been corrected. I mean, Democrats by and large thought Bill Nelson did an awful job reaching out the Hispanic community in, in Florida, uh, and that Andrew Gillen wasn't necessarily any better in their campaigns. And you would hear Democrats talk about that endlessly, even here in Washington, how much better Rick Scott did, how much more money he put into it, how much more effort he put into it. And then two years later, here's everything's on the line in the presidential campaign, and I'm not sure how much better Joe Biden did. And you heard a lot of the same complaints, and you hear a lot of the same complaints even before the election that started to surface. His his outreach, not just to the Hispanic community, but to the African-American community. And It appears that he did a little worse with black voters this time around, too. Look, there were some big picture demographic things that are at play here uh, that are probably more important. But I think Democrats have to evaluate, reevaluate top to bottom how they they reach out to these communities, what the message is, and just like, what is the amount of effort? How many resources? How much money are you putting into this? Because it doesn't seem to be working, whatever they're doing. And, And I would expect that that is going to be a very prominent conversation among Democratic strategists over the coming years. And I would just say there are a lot of Democratic strategists of color, black and Latino, who feel like their voices have been sidelined in this conversation for a, a very long time, forever, basically. And they're going to be very insistent that You know what? It's time to finally start listening to us. Um, and I think that is going to be a story to watch very closely uh, over the next uh, couple of years.
2: There's a lot of people right now who feel that in Florida, Democrats or, you know, people who tried to be included in the conversation among Democrats of how the Biden campaign was going to approach communities like the Puerto Rican community, for example, that just felt that they weren't heard. And now they're talking and now they're going on social media and, you know, even showing screenshots of messages that were, went unanswered. And just this over reliance from the Democratic party and operatives and, you know, um, kind of old guard strategists that really just don't understand, uh, what it's like to live in these communities and really talk to them. And I think that the Republican this year really just cemented this messaging that they're the party of the working people of Florida. And it's really just incredible because for Democrats, they feel defeated because they ran on these issues, right? They ran on the issues of unemployment and, you know, the economy also helping small businesses. A lot of messaging that's kind of traditionally Republican, but it wasn't enough for them to really identify themselves as, you know, we are the the, the party that represents kind of, you know, the people of color, the working class, this was really something that Republicans seized on, especially in the state of Florida.
3: I don't know if this is the case in Florida, but in Texas, you know, what's being talked about most is that the the Democrats is the, the dynamics of this year and that the Democrats didn't go door to door. You know, the Democrats, uh, you know, ran kind of, of, a, of a remote campaign. Uh, campaigned on Zoom, had their convention on Zoom, uh, didn't go out and talk to people, tried to win by text messages, and the Republicans went out door to door. Uh, um, that's what's being you know, described as the difference here at, in a lot of these local campaigns in particular. And that's where the second guessing is coming in, is that the Democrats didn't go out and meet the people in a state that was fully out and active and everybody was going anywhere, and the Democratic candidates were the only ones sitting at home, with their masks on, trying to talk over the computer while the Republican was at the front door of someone who's bored and enjoys the company and wants to talk, particularly in the race, the congressional race in Dallas-Fort Worth, uh, where Candace Valenzuela was favored in the open seat uh, in the mid cities in Dallas Fort Worth and lost to Beth Van Dyne Beth Van Dyne went out door to door and, and uh, you know just met everyone she could in every neighborhood in a suburban district that was thought to be a lean blue district you know she now leads Candice Valenzuela that's still the result's still up in the air, but you know, Candace Valenzuela uh, wasn't out like like the Republican was, and that's what the Democrats—that's what a lot of Texans are saying—made the difference. Is that the Democrats didn't even come out and meet people in a state where everybody else was out shopping, going around, being active? That's what re- Democrats really think cost them. I, I
1: wonder if we're in store here for a broad reevaluation of how the public sees coronavirus, the pandemic, and how they see Donald Trump's response to it. Yeah. Um, because that was supposed to be the single biggest driver of votes against him in this race. And it, and it might have been, right? I mean, you know, Trump is underperforming in a lot of battleground states, and it's, it's reasonable to think that the coronavirus pandemic is a big part of that. And I'm not saying that the American uh, electorate is anti-mask or anything like that or thinks we shouldn't be cautious, but just that, you know, look, if the polling was wrong about this election, I think it's worth asking, is the polling also wrong broadly about, how the public sees this and sees the, say, for instance, the debate of reopening versus, you know, emphasizing everyone stay healthy and socially distant. And that maybe the margins, at least, aren't quite as dramatic as we think. And, and I, I mean, it's one of my central questions. I mean, what does the electorate that turned out on Tuesday or this election, I should say, what, what is their opinion of how Donald Trump handled the coronavirus pandemic? Because my guess is it's going to be seen as a lot more favorable. Than the public polling would suggest. And I think that sits at the heart of why this race was so much closer.
2: And actually, Alex, on that point, the New York Times had a story about this in the Midwest, but I think it's very true for Florida. I mean, the the shutdowns and you know, kind of these precautions hit so hard for families here because this is such a tourism reliant state. That, you know, for for a lot of people that I talked to, that was way more important than even their physical safety and their, you know, their health or even the president's attitude toward the coronavirus and masks and everything. You know, it was about who is the president that's going to make sure that I can make my rent (laughs) and pay my bills. And we heard that across the board and we were having conversations about it, even, you know, in Trump rallies that we went to and, you know, a lot of these events, it mattered whether people could actually return to work and open up their businesses.
0: Yeah, Bianca with the last word. I think that's a really good point that you and Alex both raise and, and looking at the role of coronavirus in this election is something I think we're gonna be post-morteming for quite a while. So thank you to this team, to Alex and Bianca and Bud. Thank you to our producer, Jeremy Sheeler and to our executive producer, Davin Coburn. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher or whatever podcast app you use. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. Happy counting to one and all and talk to you next week.